0: Listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Hi Michelle. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to Belabored Episode 102. We're speaking with Eric Fink, North Carolina law professor, Brooklyn native, and rogue candidate for local state senate. And don't forget to check out the Descent Magazine website. If you go to descentmagazine.org, you can go to the donate page and check out our free gift for becoming a monthly sustaining member of the Belabored Podcast. You'll get a free tote bag. Check it out. But first, the news Verizon
0: workers are still out on strike today, two weeks after they first went out, and it doesn't look as though it is going to be over anytime soon. The 3,900 workers took up the picket lines on April 13th, as we reported last episode, and for the first time, wireless store workers were part of the strike. Picket lines now extend to Verizon wireless stores all over the place, rallies take the streets, and Bernie Sanders turns up in support. The Verizon strikers say they're not going back in without a contract, setting the stage for a protracted battle. Verizon is trying to argue, of course, that the workers are sabotaging the company, a claim that might be easier to take seriously if they didn't also send out untrained replacement workers. Picket lines and solidarity from hotel workers have kept those replacement workers out of three hotels in New York City, and have been moving quickly to keep up with locations where replacement workers are being dispatched from. Other unions and workers are fundraising to support the strikers. Meanwhile, consumer opinion about Verizon has dropped to its lowest level in three years, the last time so many people had a bad opinion of Verizon. When the news broke that the company was sharing its phone records with the National Security Agency. Hmm. The strikers continue to talk about Verizon's outsourcing of jobs, its lack of investment in the new high-tech Fios service, and, of course, its massive profits, which it is unwilling to share with the workforce that makes it those profits. We will, of course, continue to visit the Verizon picket lines until the strike is over.
1: Well, it seems like Uber is juggling about 30,000 different lawsuits at any given time, so it's hard to figure out what constitutes a serious legal challenge for the ride-sharing corporation. But on one legal front at least, Uber seems to be standing its ground and withstanding legal scrutiny. In its latest settlement for $100 million with a bunch of aggrieved Uber drivers on the West Coast, Uber does lose out somewhat. It pays out that $100 million and grants certain, quote, rights to drivers, including easing up on its deactivation policy, which had previously enabled drivers to be rather arbitrarily shut out of the network, they complained, if they were deemed to be committing some transgression against the company, effectively terminating them without due process. So that practice will... Uh, supposedly be amended. The other big deal which uh, consumers are interested in is that Uber will now more explicitly allow tipping by customers. Now everyone's fixated on the tipping aspect, but look behind the curtain and you'll see a much more major deal being waged by Uber, drivers will continue to be treated as independent contractors. Now, as we've discussed before and belabored, this is one of the most pernicious aspects of Uber's entire business model. The fact that these drivers are basically employees in every aspect except name and legal status, and that has led to all sorts of troubles in terms of what they are legally entitled to as drivers, the types of labor protections they are afforded, and the types of benefits they're allowed to get. So this is basically a green light for Uber to continue operating as a non-employer. That is, it managed to make the case to the court that it's not a boss, just a humble little startup that created this app that is churning out millions and millions of dollars and screwing over lots of drivers around the world. To bolster its claims that it's really doing right by its drivers, it created what might be deemed a yellow union for a non-workforce. Um, so to sort of thread that needle, as Huffington Post reports, Uber created a driver's association that acts sort of like a union union. We're not quite sure exactly what its role will be, but it will allegedly be representing drivers in some nominal way. This is not to be confused with the Teamsters' ongoing effort to unionize Uber drivers from the outside through initiatives such as the App-Based Drivers Association, an ongoing initiative in Seattle to effectively provide independent contractors with collective bargaining rights through a separate structure that is uh, essentially overseen by the state in some form. The New Drivers Association is not just founded by Uber, but actually directly funded by Uber. And if that's not enough of a conflict of interest, as Dave Jamison points out in his Huffington Post report, that automatically opens it up to legal challenges on two fronts. One, on antitrust law, if they remain independent contractors, because that could be seen as some kind of quasi-cartel activity. Or two, on the basis of a provision in the National Labor Relations Act that basically bars a private company from sponsoring a worker-led organization and otherwise controlling or managing in its affairs. So federal labor law does somewhat take this into account, but because Uber falls into this gray area, legally speaking, it's unclear exactly what kind of rights they will have or won't have and what capacity they will have to challenge the authority of this Uber Drivers Association. Of course, if you want to talk to the experts in this field, the Teamsters, that is, the real union, they have a, quite a different perspective. They say that Uber drivers, currently as independent contractors, can achieve rights uh, for collective bargaining if they are allowed to form an independent organization with genuine independence as opposed to what Uber seems to be proposing right now. And as the Teamsters organizer quipped, Uber should, quote, really talk to us as a result of what you've agreed to do. We're an organization that has the size and breadth to take something on in California. Who better than us? Who's been dealing with these issues for a hundred years? Who, Uber? Who?
0: Belabored listeners might be familiar with the growing momentum within labor unions to take on issues of injustice outside of what is normally considered labor's purview. One of those issues is that of the Israeli occupation of Palestine and the injustice that it creates, in particular for Palestinian workers. Recently, three graduate student worker locals passed resolutions supporting a policy of boycott, divestment, and sanctions, calling for their university employers to divest pension funds and other investments from Israeli institutions that are complicit in violating the human rights of Palestinians. UAW 2865, the graduate student worker union at the University of California, voted for BDS in 2014. Last year, the Connecticut AFL-CIO passed a resolution after a delegation of Connecticut labor leaders visited Israel and Palestine to request, quote, "...that the national AFL-CIO demand that our government diligently apply all diplomatic and economic tools to bring an end to the Israeli occupation of Palestine, and to support a fair and just peace in which the people of Israel and Palestine can live in peace and security in accordance with international law and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights." They also called for the National AFL-CIO to adopt BDS as a strategy. Also last year, the United Electrical Workers Union adopted a resolution endorsing BDS. This year, the NYU Graduate Employee Union, which is GSOC UAW 2110, and the University of Massachusetts Amherst Graduate Employee Union, GEO UAW 2322, both voted to endorse BDS. There is, of course, tension around this issue within the labor movement. The UAW nullified the California vote last year, arguing that the resolution was discriminatory and hurt the interests of workers at companies targeted by the boycott, including Boeing, Caterpillar, and others. During the union election at NYU, the student workers said that some of the candidates for union election were disqualified for being part of the GSOC for BDS caucus. Local 2110 responded that certain members were disqualified from running because they did not work in the bargaining unit during the academic year, had not paid dues, or had not signed a membership card. Clearly, this issue will continue to be contentious going forward, and we will keep you posted.
1: The third year anniversary of the Rana Plaza factory disaster in Bangladesh was remembered quietly by labor advocates this past week in the US and in Bangladesh. The rest of the world, of course, is forgetting fast. Three years on, the International Labor Rights Forum put out a scathing report showing that, first of all, workers remain traumatized. They keep on suffering the massive injuries as well as the economic losses of the disaster. And they're still struggling to be made whole three years after their factory collapsed and them killing about 1,100 workers. And workers are still without real labor rights, as their union leaders suffer persecution on a routine basis. Uh, Union organizing is violently suppressed through both legal instruments as well as sheer thug violence. And women often fare the worst in these circumstances uh, since they make up the bulk of ultra-low-wage factory labor in the garment sector. There has, of course, been some progress, Uh, thanks to international outrage with the collaboration of international labor organizations as well as indigenous groups on the ground and community-based organizations and NGOs. The Bangladesh Accord on Building Safety has been making some inroads with corrective interventions to improve the factory conditions at a subset of garment factories that have been willing to undergo renovation plans to bring their facilities up to international standards. Uh, to date, thousands of citations regarding structural safety, fire safety, and uh, electrical hazard issues and whatnot have been issued. Corrective action plans have been drafted up. Um, unfortunately, to date, only a handful of factories have actually successfully completed their renovation plans and come into full compliance, and the accord is expected to last only until 2018, so time is running out to really make real progress, and it's unclear that what will happen to the financing or the enforcement of the accord once its expiration date hits. There's also been a donor trust fund set up to compensate some of the victims. As we've noted before on this podcast, compensation is really too little too late at this point. It ranges from about 1340 U.S. dollars to an injured survivor to about 10 times that amount for families of the deceased. Of course, never going to adequately compensate for the loss of a loved one, uh, to say nothing of the actual loss of lifetime income that uh, these really low-wage workers depended on for their livelihood. But um, I have a report The Nation this week regarding a lawsuit that has been launched in Canada trying to seek to hold the mega-retailer Loblaws accountable for the factory conditions way down in supply chain. It turns out it was uh, contracting with a supplier factory in Rana Plaza, and they're using the sort of chain of accountability of subcontractors and contractors all the way up to the Western brand at the top of the supply chain trying to hold laws responsible for the grievous harms that were suffered by the workers by saying, look, they deliberately sourced through these factories knowing they were unsafe, turning a blind eye to the terrible factory conditions and the rampant labor violations as well as massive corruption on the ground in Bangladesh. It remains to be seen whether or not they can really seek justice, but it is moving towards a trial. They're getting the, uh, their class action certified on behalf of several thousand victims of the disaster. And I spoke earlier with Joel Rochon in Toronto. He's one of the lawyers working on the case against Loblaws. And here he is talking about that company's role in the Rana Plaza factory disaster. Uh,
2: The New Wave style factory in Rana Plaza was dedicated primarily to uh, producing Loblaws Uh, clothing for the Joe Fresh line. And um, as a result of that, Loblaws had a a very important role uh, to play in controlling the audit process and the inspection process of Rana Plaza. Uh, The problem is we allege that they uh, affected their audits and instructed the audit company Bureau Veritas in a way that was entirely negligent. Ever since Loblaws was there, in fact, this building was under a constant state of construction adding additional floors. These are all illegally constructed floors, as it turns out. And at the time of the collapse, the ninth floor was in the process of being constructed. All of these uh, additional floors were uh, to be used uh, to house the expansion of the the new wave style factory uh, to allow for the further production of uh, the Joe Fresh uh, product line. So Loblaws was involved uh, through their corporate responsibility requirements or standards. Um, As part of that, they conducted audits. Uh, We say the audits were done negligently. We say Loblaws controlled uh, the audit process and they just uh, failed to do it properly.
1: So uh, watch this space, see what happens with the workers and see what happens with their efforts to continue to strengthen their union rights, because ultimately, and this is what tripped up the Triangle Shirtwaist workers, they don't have power in their workplace. There is no way they can hold their employers to account.
0: Eric Fink is a longtime friend of belabored and of the Twitter hashtag #ClassWar community and is a professor of labor and employment law at Elon University in North Carolina, the state that just passed a deeply extreme bill that restricts transgender people's access to restrooms, cracks down on local non-discrimination ordinances and restricts cities' abilities to raise the minimum wage, among, well, many other things. HB2 was backed by Republicans in the state legislature who've introduced myriad restrictions on workers, voters, women, LGBT people, you know, pretty much everyone in the state since taking power. And they are led by Senate President pro tempore Phil Berger. Well, Eric Fink is now running against Phil Berger, inspired by HB2, and he is our guest this week to talk about the labor implications of the law, North Carolina politics, and why he's running as an independent. So, Eric, live from the campaign trail, Um, first off, can you um, explain what HB2 does for our listeners? There have been kind of a lot of stories about it that just describe it as an anti-LGBT bill, and the reality, of course, is a lot more complicated than that.
3: Exactly. And that's, you know, in a way, that's kind of the point of it. Um, Yeah. The people who sponsored it, the Republicans in Raleigh, are calling it a bathroom safety bill, um, which is... Completely a distortion. Um, People who oppose it are calling it an anti-LGBT bill, and that is completely true. Um, And it's an important part of the truth, but it's not the whole story. (laughs) You know, in simple phrase, one thing it does, and this is what has been, you know, most attention. um, It overrides the city of Charlotte passed a city ordinance um, providing for um, you know equal equal rights um, for LGBTQ folks in all kinds of public facilities, including letting people go to the, you know, personal facilities that, you know, suits them. Um, And the first part of the bill overrides not just Charlotte, but it says that no city or county in North Carolina can pass any of its own anti-discrimination laws of any kind. Um, And the excuse for that was imaginary fears about, um, you know, people you know, sexual violence or sexual predators in bathrooms, which, you know, as, as we know, has no reality behind it. But that was really just the smokescreen for a, a much bigger power grab by the state to prevent local governments from passing all kinds of local ordinances to protect workers. So we've had some movement here about local living wage ordinances. Um, Greensboro, where I live, passed a law. Uh, passed a local ordinance um, for a 15 dollar minimum wage for city workers and we've been trying to press to expand that to contractors with the city similar moves in other cities this law wipes that out um so this whole movement around raising you know getting living living wages through local ordinances that's been banned now in North Carolina the law says North Carolina public policy prohibits Discrimination on all kinds of grounds. Well, they left out sexual orientation and gender identity. And then they also said if you are discriminated against, you can't sue under state law. So, you know, I'm not sure what the point of having a law is that says discrimination is illegal if it also says you can't do anything about it. Um, But that's, you know, that's what they've done. So, you know, know, that's really in a nutshell what the bill does.
1: What are the broader social ramifications for the law when it is fully implemented? Aside from the sensible target of the law, um, how might other communities or minority groups in the state uh, be affected by this from a basic sort of civil liberties standpoint? Uh, How does it go beyond just bathrooms?
3: It affects every community um, throughout this state. Um, It means that the only way to expand civil civil rights protections or workers' rights protections is going to be statewide in Raleigh, where we've got um, right now uh, very solid control by very reactionary Republicans who are never going to pass anything um, that favors, uh, you know, that favors civil rights or employees. So, you know, the number one ratification is, you know, any any movements for expanding those kinds of rights um, are now up against a brick wall. Uh, The other ratification is it's, affecting the economy of this state in a very fast and furious way we've had a lot of major companies you know people saw paypal is just one example they were going to start a facility here it was going to employ 500 people they said nope and they canceled that there have been a whole lot of other um, companies that have also pulled out of plans to you know to uh, have new jobs here um and then Uh, Everyone saw about Bruce Springsteen, a lot of other performers canceling performances, conventions, canceling conventions. This state has already lost millions of dollars, um, you know, just from the tourism and the, you know, influx of people and hundreds and hundreds of jobs. And that's just within, you know, less than less than two months. Um, That is not going to stop.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about specifically about um, these anti-worker provisions? And particularly, you know, I'm, I keep thinking about, you know, the, the bathroom bill part of it also affects workers, because if you can't use a, a restroom in any of these places, how does that affect you at work? And how this connects to North Carolina's long history of, of anti-worker policies and the other things that have been passed since um, this particular sort of round of reactionaries, as you say, took power.
3: Absolutely. I mean, you know, you said it. Unfortunately, this state that, you know, I'm very happy to live here, very proud of this state. But unfortunately, we have a very bad history of anti-labor, anti-worker, you know, laws and actions. Um, We were one of the first states to be right to work. We're one of the only states, not only do we not have um, union rights for public employees, it's against the law to have public employee collective bargaining. And uh, the law in the book says it's a misdemeanor; it's a criminal offense to have a public employee collective bargaining agreement, which is kind of <laughs> ridiculous. Um, I think we're the only state where it's a criminal offense. No one's ever been prosecuted. No one even knows what that would mean. Um, but it shows it's symbolic. It shows the, it shows right. the depth of hostility. This state has sold itself for decades um, economically as: come to North Carolina, we have weak worker protections, we have low wages, Yeah. and you know, we drew down the textile and furniture industries from the north based on that. Uh, they were here for a long time. Mm-hmm. People had jobs. They weren't necessarily very good jobs until another low bidder came around, and those jobs vanished overnight, and they went overseas, you know, because as low as we go, someone else can always go lower. Um This is all part of that same model, this this mindset that the only way to be economically competitive is to have the lowest standards in the race to the bottom. Um, And this is, you know, just one more example. And then they add to it hostility towards people who are different. That used to be traditionally in North Carolina, African-Americans, Jesse Helms, you know, that the subtle and not so subtle racist appeals um, about who's responsible and now the new scapegoat are lesbian, gay, transgender, um generally queer people. Um, it's the same it's the same old formula.
1: from the perspective of someone who's on the ground down there in North Carolina, can you describe the general public response to the bill? Um there's obviously been backlash from all over the country. Um, how are the campaigns and movements that have always been on the ground there advocating around these issues, trying to strategically kind of leverage the public attention this bill has gotten to push a broader platform?
3: Yeah, well, and that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to talk about that because that's the other side um, of the North Carolina story. As much as we have this history that I see as very negative, we have a, a, a long and strong, very positive history of people Actively organizing um, again for decades on a pro progress, pro equality, pro civil rights um, platform. And we see that now. We do have, in particular, very strong at statewide and locally, very strong LGBT um, civil rights organizations. Um, statewide, the big organization is Equality NC. Those groups have been extremely active, um, they were already. Um, And and they're ramping it up. And I think that they're being very effective in countering the message, in getting people to uh, understand what this bill is really about and cutting through the mess. Um, It's hard. I think public opinion here is split. Um, I think some people do get focused on this bathroom issue. And some people, you know, whether it's through unfamiliarity um, or whatever, uh, you know, people – have a fear of, you know, what they say, oh, I don't want men in the women's room. And it's, it can be hard to get people to understand that that's, you know, a misunderstanding. And it's hard to convey that without, you know, you don't want to be demeaning to people who might not understand. But I think that, you know, groups like Equality and and others are, are doing a great job of getting that, work, uh, getting that word out. The latest thing that I've seen is that overall public opinion – is tilted against the bill, and the more people see how it's an attack on local government's ability to add protections, the stronger that opposition to the bill um, gets. So that's where a lot of the focus is right now in getting people to see the the under-the-covers version of the bill. Um, And the more people see that, the more they dislike it.
1: Can you describe how the national response to the bill looks from where you are? Um, you know, here in the Northeast, um, I can see that the the response to the bill is very much, uh, you know, uh, people affirming their perceptions of what North Carolinians or uh, the southern states are like. Um, how do you, as someone who's on the ground there in North Carolina, and is also a Brooklyn transplant, um, both challenge yeah. legislation, but also dispel some of the more um, nefarious stereotypes about your state?
3: Yeah, again, this is this is crucial. And I will say, as a native New Yorker who chose to move here um, to a state that I really love um, because it's beautiful, uh, but also because it's not. This, this state is not the stereotype of the South that people up in the North often have. It doesn't mean we're always have clean hands, but, you know, North Carolina among the Southern States always has been divided um, uh, on some of these issues and has always had some of the strongest movements pro progress and pro equality. So it hurts me um, emotionally It's also, you know, potentially hurts me politically to see people in the north simply say, oh, well, there go, you know, those ignorant racist southerners, there they go again. You know, I grew up in New York, and I went to a segregated public school, all right? Mm -hmm. I grew up in New York, and I remember, you know, how much overt and strong racism there is up there. So, you know, one thing is I would hope people would be a little more careful about pointing fingers. Um, Down on the ground here, people are sensitive to that. And I think people who can otherwise be won over, um, I think it's understandable that they get their backs up when they what they perceive as, oh, a bunch of Yankees, a bunch of elite people telling us how to live. Uh, You know, I think it's a mistake to worry. You know, I'd rather say, well, yes, but we should be living better. But I understand that reaction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on things like the boycotts and the, the concerts among people who are strongly organizing against this bill, there's real divided opinion about whether performers should, should boycott here or whether they should come here and join in the message. Um, and I have, you know, I have friends and allies who are really on both sides of that. We're trying to we're trying not to get bogged down in that and say, OK, mm-hmm. people are going to make their decisions. Um, but it's sometimes that reaction um, can be as big of a problem
0: yeah and i think again you know we were talking about the the record on labor that that north carolina has and the way and i mean i you know i lived in the south for a long time too so i have a similar reaction that to you that that when people start to talk about the way this is just how the south is one of the things that i always find interesting about north carolina is that north carolina had you know this dismal record on on labor while its state legislature was controlled for a very long time by Democrats, which is usually the solution for the the smug people who want to say that you know you you need to be more like us, i.e., vote for Democrats. Okay, well, people voted for Democrats, and those Democrats did very little to change North Carolina's position as a low-wage state.
3: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think I think we're starting to see changes um, there. Um, the Democratic yeah. Party in North Carolina is. You know, it has has an increasing diversity. The traditional group um, in the in recent decades has been this sort of you know moderate, socially liberal but fairly economically conservative in the in the mold of you know Terry Sanford and Governor Hunt. Um, these are folks who did great stuff in office, but also within a limited you know what we now would call a neoliberal framework. They right. they did not put a high priority on uh, you know raising wages or expanding workers' rights. We're seeing right. more of that as the, the population of the state's changing. There's people moving here from elsewhere. We're a big immigrant state, particularly yeah. a lot of immigrants um, from Mexico and, and Latin America, who um, those who are, you know, uh, able to vote are registering and are bringing a different, you know, one of the things people talk about North Carolina and labor, we have had the lowest rate of, of union density. We're now, we're now the second lowest. South Carolina has now surpassed us.
0: We're at the same one. time, we
3: right. But at the same time, we've had some of the most exciting union activity in this state. Some of it really successful in extremely unlikely circumstances. We had the Smithfield campaign that finally, right. you know, did get um, recognition after a long, um, strident and illegal opposition by the company. We have FLOC, the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, um, who represent and organize migrant farm workers. Almost all of them immigrants and uh, a significant portion of them with undocumented immigration status. Mm-hmm. No legal basis for organizing, but through sheer, you know, hard organizing, not only organize these workers, but they have a collective bargaining agreement with the growers. It's, it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had other, you know, smaller union victories um, in, in recent years. Obviously, it's still small in numbers. But the the willingness of people to do that tells me that we can do it. Um,
0: Yeah. And so talking about the Democrats having not really done that much and, uh, you know, certainly the the Republicans having done active harm, um, what made you decide to then run for the state Senate and run as an independent? Yeah,
3: well – The seat that I'm running for, it's the 26th Senate District. It just runs from the Virginia border um, down. It's in the north-central part of the state. The incumbent is this fellow, Phil Berger. He's been in there for, I think, 11 years. He's the Republican leader in the state Senate. He's generally recognized as the most powerful Republican in the state. He was, among many things, he was the prime mover and prime pusher of HB2. He's the guy who pushed it through, um, fast and furious. Right. I learned in March, after the primary, that he had no Democratic opponents. He was running unopposed. He's one of about twenty or so Republicans who are running unopposed. Now these are okay. in gerrymandered districts that you know heavily favor Republicans, right. but you know, after talking with friends, you know, we, I've been talking and we said, you know, this is unacceptable. How do you let this guy, this is not just a seat, he's the guy. How do we let him run unopposed? And finally I decided, all right, I'll step up and I'll do it. Um, if other people who I knew, you know, would, would work with me. So that's, that's how it's come about. I was an independent anyway. Um, that's how I'm registered. Mm -hmm. Um, to get on the ballot, we have, unfortunately, we have one of the most restrictive ballot access um, right. laws in, this, in the country. Yeah. So what I'm doing right now, and literally right now, um, is going around, I need uh, more than 5,000 signatures. Uh, my goal is to get twice that, um, right. between now and June 9th, um, to qualify for the ballot. Um, if I succeed, I will actually be the first person in North Carolina history to do that for a state legislative election. Um, but once, once we do that and we are, you know, really well on our way, um, I'm confident that we're going to do that. Then I think running as an independent and someone who hasn't, you know, been running for office before, I think that's going to be an advantage. I'm running Mm -hmm. against, uh, you know, this guy is a tough politician. Um, he's an entrenched politician, but you know, one of the things that's amazing to me, I'm getting, Republicans reaching out to me. I mean, I I have made no, you know, I am not running away from the fact that I am a, you know, distinctly left-leaning person. I'm very open about identifying myself as a Democratic socialist. And I, you know, I've been described that way in the local um, news stories about my campaign. I I am very happy um, to to talk to people about that. But I think it's interesting that people are able, you know, to see, well, okay, but this is a state Senate race. You know, we may or may not like that, but the reality is, you know, we need to come together about a common goal, get this incumbent out. Um, Defeating him will not just win over one more seat away from the Republicans. Um, You know, this is taking down their leader. Um, This can really help take the wind out of the sails. Yeah. And even if, you know, I'm I'm very realistic, the odds are very high. Even if, in the end, you know, I'm not able to defeat him, the other important thing is to start to build a movement on the ground. Part of the problem is that in this district and in a lot of districts, um, the existing political system, they haven't been cultivating candidates. Yeah. So, you know, we're out there hoping to win, but I'm also out there um, building a good group of people and a good movement so that two years from now and the next time we have state elections, There can be other candidates, hopefully, um, you know, more uh, more like me ideologically organizing and running more widely throughout the state. Mm
1: -hmm. Why don't you just give us the elevator pitch for your platform? What would you do in your first hundred days in office or uh, what what would you do on day one if elected? (laughs)
3: Um, well, I promised my son th- – this is, this is, this is um, funny, but I did. I promised my son that the first bill I introduced will be to change the state bird from the cardinal to the Carolina chickadee, which I do <laughs> think is scandalous that, we, you know, we're a state that has a bird named after us, and we don't honor it. So that is, in fact, um, what I will do on day one. But on the real pressing issues, uh, HB2, in a sense, you know – it, it's, it is the immediate issue because it's just happened and it's gaining national attention. But for me, it's the symbolic um, value of it. The real issues, I think, are three. One is, you know, I talk about solidarity, um, it's about respect. We are a state with a lot of different people who come from different places and live different ways, and we all have to stick together, you know, as a state and recognize that. You know, everybody here has to have equal rights and equal status and equal treatment, you know, under the law. Um, And we have to end this division of people, whether it's by race or gender or sexual orientation, gender identity, um, whatever. So that's number one. Number two and number three, they really are joined at the hip, jobs and education. Uh, When I moved here, North Carolina had one of the best public school systems from kindergarten through graduate and professional schools, one of the best, you know, is certainly in the South and I would say, you know, among the best in the country that's been undermined by deliberate, you know, this deliberate austerity strategy of starving state revenues and cutting, cutting, cutting. Um, so that, you know, here in Rockingham County where I am today, um, it's a pretty relatively poor rural district, um, They are looking at closing schools. They can't paint the schools. They can't repair walls that are water damaged um, and let alone have adequate teaching resources. Um, So related to that is jobs. Even before all the jobs we've lost because of HB2, this state and this district, you know, the the big employers, the kinds of jobs that pay decent wages, we're losing them. Here in Rockingham County, we have a Miller Brewery, Um, that's in the process of closing. closing. Those workers have been represented by the Teamsters. It's one of the largest locally unionized um, workplaces. They paid pretty good wages. But now with the merger of Miller and Coors, you know, they don't want to have that brewery here anymore. And that's Mm -hmm. just being replicated all over the state. So we need to get back. You know, the first priority is restoring the damage. You know, know, we talked about the first 100 days that's, you know, I, unrealistic to say I can really repeal and, you know, and get a majority of people to really repeal, but that's the immediate focus for this first term, repealing and restoring the funding for education, um, restoring the kinds of forward-looking uh, efforts we did have uh, to, to build jobs and, and economic development, and then going forward, to trying to increase from there.
1: Based on that, I mean, as someone who's running as an outsider, um, who comes from uh, the legal world, from uh, the higher education world and has been a labor advocate, what do you think about the electoral process, particularly how the party system plays out in this country. I think a lot of us, uh, you know, on the progressive side have been feeling pretty deflated after this, uh, you know, having seen how these primaries are playing out, very frustrated with the two-party system. As someone who's coming from the outside, looking at it from the inside now, uh, what do you think? Are you finding allies? Are you finding a buy-in for the kind of politics that you're trying to push?
3: I think I am, and I think part of it speaks to the difference between state and local electoral politics, and national electoral politics. You know, I, I, I do think it's important. I was very excited about the Sanders campaign and very strongly supportive of it. I think it actually has, you know, helped despite the, the many impediments. But I think that those of us, you know, in the progressive or left movement, I think it's unfortunate that we've neglected the, the less glamorous state and local um, elections. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more room there, you know, in, in terms of the existing parties, You know, the Democratic Party at a local level, you know, this varies from place to place. Um, Here where I am, even though I'm not a registered Democrat and even though I'm not running as a Democrat, the local parties were very quick to reach out to me. I didn't know them, but they immediately reached out to me and have offered their help and have really, you know, made good on that, putting feet on the ground, helping me get these petitions and helping me raise um, money that I need. So I think it's possible to do that. Um, even running, you know, uh, openly to the left of the establishment Democratic Party at the local level, if they see that, you know, you're serious and, you know, you're out there to run a real campaign. Um, you know, I have very mixed feelings about electoralism as, you know, a, a way forward for truly, you know, the truly kind of uh, the fundamental change that I want. I don't think you know, I'm not going to bring about democratic socialism in the, in the North Carolina state legislature. Uh, I just look at it as, as, as a practical matter. The state politics, legislative politics, it exists. They have a lot of power, and they make decisions that affect people very strongly. And if we just ignore it because we don't like how it works, uh, that's not helping anybody. If we go in there starry-eyed and think we're going to fundamentally change the system, that's very unrealistic. So I think one thing we need to do among people on the on the left is say some of us just need to be willing to go into this with our eyes open and, you know, try to achieve. It's that very hard balance of, you know, trying to achieve reforms without getting bogged down in reformism. Um, I think that that's a lot more feasible at the local level. I, I want to see people running for school board and city councils and county Boards and and state legislatures. Um, And, you know, if we do that and show at that local level that we have real ideas that are not flighty and are not unrealistic as people attack us, then we'll have the credibility to build up a movement that can more strongly challenge the existing um, party structure.
1: Do you think that there's um, a possibility for a kind of third-party politics here, or um, are you sort of, uh, you know, not feeling the whole party thing altogether?
3: I, I'm i agnostic on that question. Um, I've been talking with uh, people here, particularly in Greensboro and Guilford County, where I live and part of the district. Um, some of us are interested, at least starting at the local level, in thinking about a a new group that might evolve into a third party. And I think we have a lot of open mind about whether that would be a a fully independent party, whether, you know, we might want to start as a faction within the existing democratic party. Uh, You know, I I don't have a firm opinion on that because I don't think anybody has the right answer. I think the experimentation is important. Um, What I'm trying, that's, that's a big part of what I'm trying to achieve here. Um, get this group of folks whatever the outcome win or lose i want as an outcome of this to have in in, you know in this part of the state at least some organization coming out and if that evolves into uh a new party um that would be terrific if it evolves into uh an effective progressive faction within the democrats that's not a bad first start either
1: and you know on the off chance that that you do not prevail here um as uh, you know having had this experience running for office, what do you hope to come away from your candidacy with win or lose? And uh, do you think this could be the start of a political career?
3: I, I don't think it will be. Um, you know I, it's 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 a little bit funny because I got into this, you know I've said this before. I got into this thinking, okay, I need to take this seriously, and I need to run this to win because i think running just a protest campaign that's a waste of people's time and money it's, it's too expensive um just to be making a statement so yeah if i achieve this goal and i win then i am going to become right an elected politician and i'm not going to want to walk away from it in two years if i don't you know this is not something i've aspired to so you know i I, that wouldn't be my priority. I would not be immediately looking for, Oh, what's the next thing I can run for? My priority would be who are additional people and what can we get more people to run for? And, you know, my role might then go back to what I'm used to doing, which is working on policy things and working on organizing things um, on behalf of other people. You know, I, I, you know, you can, you can hear now i I'm not a natural politician, right? We've heard this phrase before, right? Um, I, I know that <laughs> – Yeah, but, but I, you know, I also know that, you know, I'm an academic guy. I'm a lawyer. You know, I'm not all that comfortable at getting out and talking in the sort of bites. I'll tell you what I like. One of the best things about this is I am meeting all kinds of people from around this district who I would never otherwise have had a chance to meet. And yeah. I'm learning all sorts of, you know, things about um, – it's one thing to say schools are a problem and schools are an issue. I went yesterday to a forum hearing people talk specifically about, you know, there's a particular elementary school here in this county and talking in, in real detail about the problems they've had. That's a great thing. to. gets terrible to hear the problems, but it's not something I would get to know about. I'm getting to know people who are really involved and really care a lot about this state. Um, So for me, that's the best part, and I want to sustain those relationships, you know, to do something uh, to continue to to be involved. So I'll continue to be involved in, uh, you know, I think state and local politics, um, not necessarily as a candidate.
0: So – To kind of wrap up here, um, a lot of people, speaking of progressive movements in North Carolina, um, are familiar with the Moral Mondays movement and particularly the work that Moral Mondays and the North Carolina NAACP and Reverend Barber did around voting rights and gerrymandering and the voter restrictions and all of that. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that has made it hard to shake this state legislature that in, in a lot of cases has gotten deeply unpopular?
3: Yeah. Without Reverend Barber and the Moral Monday movement, there's no way that it would have been at all feasible for me to do this. Okay? I, you know, I've been involved, um, not centrally, but I've participated in the Moral Mondays, and I have seen how it started as this little event. It has really spread. You know, they're continuing to put the pressure on Raleigh, but they've also mobilized and engaged people um, at all the local levels. And the wonderful thing about Moral Monday is it is a true coalition in the best sense, you know, started by the NAACP, which in North Carolina, it's, I think it's one of the largest state NAACP chapters mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a chapter that has been really on the cutting edge of, you know, a cross-section of progressive issues, strongly, um, uh, you know, strongly allied, among other things, with the state's labor movement um, and also strongly allied with, a a broad range of faith communities, you know, uh, you know, of all, uh, denominations and, and, and religions. Um, and so it, it really has brought people together. Um, without that, there would be no point to this. I think when, and it's a matter of, you know, when it happens, it will happen. When we defeat, you know, this current Republican majority, they will have, you know, the credit will be to them. Um, you know, up here in Rockingham County, where I am, which is a, a overwhelmingly white county, but there is a very strong and well-organized African American community, um, very strongly involved in the NAACP and Moral Monday movement. Um, and that group of folks here in Rockingham County have been the strongest in reaching out to me, and not just saying, "Oh, we support you," but you know, that's what I'm doing today. I'm out here with one of the African American leaders, um, and he's taken me around house to house to meet people. Um, who I otherwise wouldn't have the chance to meet, and people who, when I say, hi, you know, you don't know me, but I'm Eric and I'm running against Stillburger, their <laughs> their question is not, who are you? Their question is, how can I help you?
0: Yeah, yeah and so, right, with, with voter restriction laws, with gerrymandered yeah. districts that are drawn for, people like Phil Berger, what additional challenges that leave for you? And how important is it that, you know, that there have been these legal challenges to that system?
3: Yeah. That's, I mean, look, I have to give these Republicans credit. They are very smart, right? Because they play on all fronts and they play to win and they're not worried about playing nice. The voting restrictions and the districting, um, you know, Those were very strong hands. Now, on the district thing, we've already seen, you know, they clearly have overplayed their hands. The court already overturned the flagrant gerrymandering for the congressional districts. The redrawn map isn't that much better, but it's at least a little better. Um, It Mm -hmm. shows that there's some weakness. And I think that this redrawn map, you know, still there's still some question whether it will survive um, ultimately in court. The state districts, there's currently a case. Pending in court, um, in fact, one of my current students and one of my former students at the law school um, uh, have been working with the Southern Center for Human Rights um, on, on, you know, who are representing the plaintiffs in that case. I think that there's a strong possibility that the court's going to rule the state legislative districts also unconstitutional and require those to be redrawn. Um, yeah. The voting rights is harder, you know, because of the Supreme Court undermining of the Voting Rights Act. You know, the court just earlier this week, the district court rejected a challenge to the voter ID provision. Um, I'm hopeful that the appeals court will take a different view, but unfortunately the state of the law under the Voting Rights Act, um, it's, it's increasingly hard to challenge things like, vote, you know, the kind of tactics like voter IDs that are used very flagrantly to suppress people of color from voting, uh, and, and generally lower income people from voting who tend, you know, not to vote for Republican. So, you know, we've got to fight that on all fronts. We've got to keep fighting that in the courts. Um, but we've also got to fight that on the ground and get people angry about the notion that politicians are taking away their right to vote.
0: You're listening to belabored, a dissent magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at dissentmagazine.org.
1: And that was Eric Fink, law professor and independent candidate for state senator in North Carolina. And now it's time for ARG, where we bring you our picks for the week of what we wish we had written but did not. My pick for the week is by Alana Samuels at The Atlantic, called The Founding Fathers Weren't Concerned with Inequality. Now, this might not come as a big shock to Beliebird listeners, but she has an interesting analysis. She talks about the Founding Fathers, who are of course back in vogue with, with Hamilton the Musical on Broadway and all of these hip new treatments of the creation myth of the United States But she takes us back to January of 1944, quote, in the midst of the terrifying days of World War II, where President Franklin Delano Roosevelt unveiled his proposal for a so-called second Bill of Rights. This was sort of the political adjunct to his Big New Deal plan. And he proposed a political program that portrayed the American dream as having some form of equity, a good job, a roof over your head, healthcare, and, most of all, economic security. Sounds like a great idea. Um, By framing it within the language of the Bill of Rights, however, he uh, found himself on some tricky terrain. He had to justify this as part of America's founding mythology. But how real was this construct? So Alana Samuels goes back to the founders, back to the original texts that they worked with, back to the original debates that they had around the Constitution, and finds out that, well, they didn't really care much about inequality. Ironically, this is not because America was even more unequal than it was today. In many ways, you might say that within the citizenry itself, uh, America was experiencing less inequality in the material sense. Now, of course, that deserves about a gajillion qualifiers, considering that we were still living in an era of slavery, women couldn't own property, um, only white men could vote, and basically uh, you had um, an entire population that was being wiped out uh, through ongoing genocide of Native peoples. But... And for the purposes of this analysis, it's important to remember that in terms of what they said, what they contemplated ideologically, and what they saw as politically viable in terms of building a republic... They were one not particularly interested in socializing the enormous bounty of wealth that they had come across by exploiting the vast riches of the new territories. And in the abstract, even on a philosophical level, they didn't much think about inequality per se. According to some historians, they believed that democracy was the best way to foster a healthy balance of self-interest, which would flourish freely only in a free market setting. But that doesn't make them socialists. Nothing close. In fact, Samuel points out, the only line that even comes close to ensuring equality in any real sense of the word appears in the preamble to the Constitution, where uh, we, the people of the United States, that famous quotation, pledge to promote the general welfare exists, but at no point in the founding literature, she writes, do the founding fathers identify what constitutes general welfare or how the nation should be upholding it. So you might say it sounds really good to put in the preamble. They didn't spend the rest of the Constitution doing much to ensure that that preamble became reality. Now, of course, we know that they are only talking about white men, again, who had attained some measure of affluence. Um, Within this small subset, some modicum of equality of circumstances did actually emerge, and that's not to be discounted. Um, ultimately, for those who wanted to achieve some measure of social mobility, there were jobs to go around, and there was also a, a relatively burgeoning middle class of tradesmen. This was a far cry from what you saw in Britain at the time, in which you had um, you know, a somewhat imperious king presiding over a fiercely unequal kingdom in which people were getting their lands taken from them, and America was a land of opportunity by comparison. As two historians, Peter Lindert and Jeffrey Williamson, recently posited, there was actually a much more even distribution of wealth among those who uh, could be considered to uh, attain some measure of wealth in the society. So, quote, the richest 1% of households held only 8.5% of total income in the late 18th century. Today, the rich is 1% of 20% of total income. The Gini coefficient, which measures inequality on a scale from 0 to 1, uh, found that it was just uh, 0.367 in New England and the Mid-Atlantic. It was 0. 0.57 in Europe in the late 18th century. So by comparison, without the aristocracy lording over them and without the rabble below starting bread riots, colonists thought they had it pretty good. So according to this ethos, Samuels writes, hobble the aristocrats and the people keeping others down, the thinking went, and anyone, no matter how humble their birth, could succeed. But of course we know how that movie ends. Fast forward through another century and a half or so of economic upheaval, social strife, financialization, industrialization, militarism, and class warfare, we end up with the Great Depression and subsequently the New Deal. And this is where FDR, very much himself a patrician leader of his day, actually realized that the citizenry, such as we came to define it as a social construct based on democratic participation rather than a property-owning class, was now incompatible with the kind of wealth accumulation that had become so polarized in the system that it was on the verge of collapse. Various policies to push the redistribution of wealth, including government investment to induce growth, progressive taxation, etc., followed under the framework of the New Deal, and along with it, FDR proposed this political program, which he branded, no doubt trying to seek legitimacy for this idea, the second Bill of Rights. But of course, the ideas that he put into the second Bill of Rights were quite distant from the first Bill of Rights, enshrining people's civil liberties and uh, privacy rights, etc. I won't get into the distinctions here, nor will I get into the many accolades and critiques afforded to uh, the New Deal program in general. But suffice it to say, his second Bill of Rights is a major addendum to the first Bill of Rights. Nowhere in the first Bill of Rights were they talking about uh, you know, putting a roof over everyone's head and making sure that everyone had economic security and could uh, retire um, in something other than abject poverty. But FDR thought this is a pretty good idea for Americans. Now regardless of what he wanted to call it, it did to some degree work. It stabilized the system and it gave Americans a sense of economic security and from that security a newfound sense of economic freedom and opportunity. Now we can quibble about whether it was built to last or built inevitably to fail, but what's important to remember is that after the Revolutionary War, there was maximum consolidation of corporate power and accumulation of profit, and inequality soared. And in a classic American boom-bust cycle, we only acted after crisis hit. And with too little and too late at that, As FDR conceived it, the second Bill of Rights was a course correction, and we can see it as an intervention that amounted to a great anomaly in American history in the 20th century. But like all great American tales of exception, it was one that managed to outlast all expectations in this great land of expectations. And it's the one that we live with today, for better or worse, and it's the one that we're left to contemplate, um, in terms of how to make it a reality again and whether or not we can come up with a new reality, maybe a third Bill of Rights, and maybe we can talk about what that would look like. I know I've avoided talking about the elections
0: as much as possible this season, but I couldn't resist this piece by friend of the show Jake Bloomgart at The American Prospect. Jake has fought mightily to continue to draw attention to local issues with so many eyeballs sucked into the hell vortex that is the presidential race, And since we talked to a local candidate on today's show, I thought this was a good uh, time to take up this subject. Jake's piece is called Labor's Cautious Endorsements, and it uses the Pennsylvania Senate race as a lens through which to analyze the reasons that unions often make little c conservative endorsements. The Pennsylvania Senate Democratic primary was basically a three-way race between Katie McGinty, who wound up winning, former Congressman and Admiral Joe Sestak, and Braddock, Pennsylvania Mayor John Fetterman, who endorsed Bernie Sanders and ran a campaign based in part on Rust Belt authenticity and in part on core progressive issues like universal pre-K and labor rights. But Fetterman got little labor support, which mostly went to McGinty. Jake looks at the history behind this tendency from the UAW's aborted plan for a labor party in 1948 and its return to the Democratic fold. Dissent board member Rich Yeselson comments for the piece, quote, the more powerful the union, the more likely it is to endorse an establishment candidate because they have more access and more influence. Jake writes, if there are increasing exceptions to the conservatism of labor's endorsements, they seem to come only if there is a either a powerful disincentive to back a candidate like Rahm Emanuel, or a very good case for backing a strong progressive option like New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. In the Pennsylvania Senate race, McGinty may not be a favorite of party activists who distrust her record with the Clintons and her measured embrace of the fracking industry, but she's proved adaptable. In her 2014 gubernatorial campaign, she supported a $9 minimum wage, but this year she announced her support for a $15 wage threshold and won the endorsement of SEIU, which is backing the wage hike. As we look forward, even, dare I say it, beyond the 2016 election, these are questions worth answering. The news that major unions had broken with the Working Families Party, both over its almost-challenge to Andrew Cuomo in 2014 and its endorsement of Bernie Sanders this year, also raises this question. Where is labor best placed to make its boldest demands? That is all for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening and all your support. Also, our tote bags have arrived, and they look fabulous, and you can get yours on the Dissent website for supporting Belabored. You can, as always, contact us at hashtag belabored on Twitter or belabored at dissentmagazine.org if you're a candidate for local office or a union official endorsing something controversial, if you're on the Verizon picket lines or a garment worker or an Uber driver or want to share your thoughts on inequality. Thanks again for your support. We'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.